The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is Ori Hample. I'm hailing from Houston, Texas. I'm a uh, urologist here. Um, July 1st was uh, an anniversary for me. It's, it was 25 years in practice. Uh, 25 years ago, this last July 1st, I finished residency the day before. I we put up a shingle, and I proved that it uh, it's America, and you can go into business for yourself. Uh, I went into solo private practice. Three years later, I added a partner who is still my partner today. Uh, we both trained at Baylor College of Medicine, uh, an excellent training program for urology. I, I'm very fortunate to have had tremendous professors and teachers and mentors, and I'm always grateful for that. And, uh, um, of course, my anniversary was greeted by reality of today, which was that vandals uh, vandalized our office uh, on early AM hours of my anniversary day and uh, broke our electrical panels and stole all the wiring from the electric company to our building and caused about uh, $40,000 worth of uh, damage. And then they did it three days later again after we repaired it. So that's the reality of being in business for yourself and in practice for yourself is you have all these other type of challenges that uh, come along your way. But I'm going to change gears now, and I want to talk about some messages that we learned or that I learned from watching a movie recently. Someone recommended to me that I should watch the movie, You Can't Take It With You. This is a movie from 1938. It's uh, a movie that uh, starred Lionel Barrymore and uh, Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart. And uh, again, it was 1938. The background uh, setting, of course, is the Great Depression at the time. World War II had not yet started uh, for the United States. Um, and uh, there were many messages in that movie. The uh, uh, One of the characters in the movie is Mr. Kirby, who's a mogul and uh, uh, very wealthy, and he tries to take over land and buildings and... Uh, control things and jimmy stewart uh works for uh is his son and he works in his business and he falls in love with uh, a woman who works for him a stenographer and her father is uh, named martin vanderhoff and he's played by lionel barrymore and he's uh eccentric he has a, a property that uh mr kirby wants to take over so he can take over the whole block and uh, build a factory or something like that. And uh, he has various people living in his house and working or sort of working or doing hobbies in his house because the background, of course, is the Great Depression and people didn't have work. And uh, uh, at one point in time in the movie, an Internal Revenue Service agent uh, comes to the house and complains to Martin Vanderhoff that uh, he has not filed his income tax return. And 
Martin Vanderhoff responds that I've never filed an income tax return, and I don't plan on it. And uh, this was, uh, you know, I guess, radical thinking. Of course, it violated the law, and uh, um, but uh, the uh, the whole issue about this was that this was a whole exchange here that was in the movie, and uh, um, and basically uh, Vanderhoff said. Uh, um, What's the government going to do with my money? And uh, the IRS then said, what do you mean? He goes, well, what do I get for my money? For instance, if I go into a department store and buy something, why, there it is. I can see it. Well, what, is the go- what are they going to give me? Why, the government gives you everything. It protects you. From what? Well, invasion. How do you think the government... Uh, going to keep up the army and the navy and all those battleships said battleships the last time we used battleships in the uh, was in the spanish-american war and what did we get for that cuba and then we gave that back why i wouldn't mind paying for something sensible and then irs agents response is something sensible what about congress and the supreme court and the president we got to pay for them don't we and vanderhoff says not with my money no sir so who's going to pay for all those buildings down in Washington and interstate commerce and the Constitution? The Constitution has been paid for years ago. And as for interstate commerce, what, what is interstate commerce anyway? Well, there's 48 states. And if uh, we weren't uh, for interstate commerce, nothing would go from one state to another, see? Well, why not? Have they got fences? Well... We're not here talking about interstate commerce, but this is a very good point. When we spend our money, our hard-earned money, after we go through the trials and tribulations of our jobs or our businesses or both, um, then through that success of generating an income, we pay our money to the federal government in taxation. And then the federal government is supposed to provide for the welfare of our country and uh, and for us. And then this movie brings out a very good point. At the making of this movie, the Internal Revenue Service only existed for 25 years. Um, the 16th Amendment of the Constitution was ratified on February 3, 1913. Prior to that, the government, the federal government, could not impose an income tax. The first almost 150 years of this country, the federal government was able to function and on not, on other sources of income, such as tariffs and other sources of income, and didn't need to confiscate our work product of as an individual in order to provide us services. So in those days, in that day and age, um, you know, the concept of taxation uh, of personal wealth um, was still objectionable to lots of people who remembered before there was an income tax and that life went on before there was an income tax. But this brings up a very important point. If we pay money, 
we should get our money's worth. And so the question is, for all the tax dollars that we pay, and I work extremely hard, I'm very fortunate, and I pay a lot of taxes, and most of us pay what we feel is a lot of taxes. So we want to get value for our money. And so the question is, when it comes to health care, are we getting value for our money for the taxes that the federal government collects from us? So let us go back almost 15 years. Let us go back to 2009. So in 2009, um, in... Uh, uh, on February 17, 2009, President Obama signed into law the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. This was a law that was the stimulus law, and it was passed with sweeping bipartisan support. Uh, we had just had an economic uh, downturn that was very severe with the financial crisis. Um, and uh, this law was supposed to be around $760 billion of law. Um, it was later scored at $832 billion. So somewhere along the way, um, the federal government did not stay within its budget for at least $72 billion worth. Um, and... What did we get for this extraordinary amount of tax dollars? Almost a trillion dollars. Um, well, we were supposed to get shovel-ready jobs to build the nation's infrastructure for inter interstate commerce. Um, and there was a whole big part of this law that had to that is related to health care. And this law is called the high tech provision the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical uh, Health. And it is, stands in for the HITECH Act. And, um, and this act was to promote the adoption and meaningful use of health information technology. Now, the original price tag on this was around $28 billion dollars. And the federal government was going to spend $28 billion of our hard-earned income to that, that they have taxed from us to help adopt electronic health records. It was going to be an incentive program that encourages. I like the word, the word encourages. It sounds so elective. It sounds so as if we have a choice. Uh, it encourages hospitals and providers to adopt EHR systems, electronic health records systems, and improve privacy and security of health records. So the first thing it did was it, it virtually forced, this law virtually forced all physicians and all healthcare entities to go to electronic health records. At the time, it was called electronic medical records, EMRs. And later that became more universally known as EHRs. And um, 
the purpose of this was, or at least the intention of this, was to provide accessible health information, to provide what's called interoperability. In other words, that your medical record was portable. So if you went from one facility to another, there'd be the free exchange of health information and to be able to provide you better care. Well, that was the intention. So I've said on a previous show that when we look at laws that are passed and and made by our federal government and our state governments and our local governments, there's always a, a good intent, a good intention. So the good intention here is to provide accessible health records for for patients and for their doctors and to provide better care to, and remember, meaningful use, okay? Meaningful use. Those, those are very important words because it means that it's useful and it's meaningful. Um, but did it do that? So... Back to the $28 billion. So what it did was it provided these incentives. And I know of countless physicians that when they adopted electronic medical records, first of all, the average one costs six figures. And most physicians, the average physician by now, it's been almost 15 years, is on their third EHR, which means that they have implemented a six-figure cost center, not a profit center, three times now. And um, and the question is, what did we get for it? Because it's a huge expense in the practice. Um, we got some good things. When I get called about a patient in the middle of the night from the emergency room or a patient calls me with a problem, I can log into my office remotely. I can access the patient's electronic health record. I know what medications they were prescribed, I know what medical problems they have, I know what surgeries I've done in them, and uh, I can better manage my patients. That is a good thing. Um, These electronic health records uh, provide for patient portals. So I and my family have had a lot of interactions with healthcare providers in recent years, and uh, especially with large hospital systems, you, one, can go in there, uh, log into their patient portal, access laboratory studies, radio, radiology studies, notes, and be able to uh, access your records. Because as physicians, we are custodians of the medical record. And the medical record belongs to the patient, but we're the custodians. We take care of it. And... It used to be in the past that the patient could get copies of their medical records. They have to pay for it, usually, for the cost of copying and accessing. But now the patient can do that themselves and in real time, or at least in the time that the labs are released by the system to allow the patient to see them. And so these are good things. These are good things. Um, The interoperability um, has been a big failure. uh, I believe uh, it was, I don't know, 10 years ago, the v, the Veterans Administration Organization, along with uh, 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 the military retirement system, along with the TRICARE system, these are the government health care systems uh, for the federal government and the, for the military, tried to figure out a way to 
be able to have all these electronic health records within the federal system talk to each other, and they spent over $2 billion trying to get this to work, and then they gave up. So they threw away $2 billion of our tax dollars trying to get all these electronic health records talking together, and it failed. So the question is, back to what Martin Vanderhoff said, what, you know, what do we get for our money? Are we getting value for our money? Is this the right way to spend our health care dollar and our tax dollars? So um, let, me, let me go a little bit further. So many physicians that I know were early adopters of these electronic health records because they were encouraged, as the law says, encouraged. Um, and the encouragement was that if one jumps through the hoops and put in an electronic health record and they would be able to um, receive incentive payments. And those payments uh, totaled up to $18,000 for implementing a health in, uh, an electronic health record. Of course, the average cost of getting one of those things up and running is in the six figures. So this was maybe a discount at best. Unfortunately, so many of the physicians that I know that got that $18,000 eventually got that $18,000 clawed back by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services via the Medicare payment system and because they found all kinds of glitches and loopholes and where the physicians didn't quite meet all the uh, meet the ability to jump through every single hoop that the federal government put in there for electronic health records and uh, they ended up never getting or getting and then losing uh, all or most of that incentive payment. Um, and so let's get back to the word encourage. So we spent $28 billion, that was the initial estimate of what the federal government spent. Uh, so we know that's probably a lot more. And uh, that's quite a bit of change in order to encourage us. Well, how good was that encouragement? Well, electronic health records are, are universal now. There are a handful of older physicians that um, hang on to their paper charts and uh, have not yet implemented electronic health records, but those are far and few between. Um, I reluctantly uh, converted as well. Um, I was reluctant basically for the reason of efficiency. Um, electronic health record charting takes a lot longer than paper. It really, really does. Um, there's also a lot of other drawbacks. When the uh, vandals vandalized our office on July 1st and July 4th, um, we didn't have power. We lost power. We lost power. We lost electronic health records. So I lost power and I couldn't get to my patient's information until, you know, our office spent $40,000 and then we had to wait on CenterPoint Energy to connect our power. And then I can only access the electronic medical record. Well, with a paper chart, it doesn't matter if the lights are out. All you need is a flashlight and you can access the patient's medical record. So there is... There's some advantages to those rare physicians who have resisted electronic health records. 
Um, the there are other issues, um, and that is to do with internet. Uh, we have a corporation that show her name nameless, but their name might rhyme with Comcast. Um, and they're a large corporation. They're an internet service provider for both our offices. And um, we have downtimes. We have times when our internet is down. And um, the hospitals uh, have times where their internet is down. Uh, sometimes in the middle of the day, sometimes it's maintenance. But uh, when the internet is down, the electronic health record may not be accessible. And then you can't take care of the patients. You have a patient, and you just don't have the health information that you need because we are now depending on electronic technology. And it only works when the electrons flow. It only works when the electrons flow within the electrical wires, and it only works when the electrons are flowing throughout the Internet. Um, and... That is a drawback of electronic health records. Do I have an electronic health record? Absolutely. Uh, do I like it? Absolutely not. Am I prepared to change? No. I, I don't want to spend over six figures. And that, that, that spending is just getting that done. The amount of productivity lost when converting charts and learning how to use a new EHR system uh, is a tremendous cost center. And a tremendous cost center, not just in dollars, but in time and in productivity lost. And for this, we paid over $28 billion of our tax dollars. Okay? And so what else did this high-tech law did? Well, the government did realize that when they introduced electronic health records, they also introduced risk. Because when that paper chart is behind lock and key in the physician's office, um, it's kind of difficult to come in and violate the privacy of the electronic of of the patient's paper medical record. Well, when you have an electronic health record, that's a different ballgame because now anybody that can hack into the system can access all that private medical information. And let us go back to another government program and another government law. This was a bipartisan law passed by a Republican Congress, signed by a Democrat, uh, uh, signed by a Democrat uh, uh, president, Bill Clinton, in 1996. It was called HIPAA. And the health Information Portability and Accountability Act. The word privacy is not in the name of the law, but everybody knows this is a privacy law. And the high-tech provision in 2009 strengthened HIPAA. The reason they had to strengthen HIPAA is because they just made that law, by implementing and forcing EHRs, just made uh, more vulnerability to patient medical information and by creating that vulnerability that law needed to strengthen HIPAA what do I mean by strengthen HIPAA it provided all kinds of guidelines and regulations about how to secure 
the electronic health records and their access. And, of course, the government likes to, quote, encourage, unquote. So some of this encouragement of privacy was to increase the penalty for HIPAA violations. They can range from $100 to $50,000, but they can actually go much higher. So there is a cap on those penalties for HIPAA violations, and that cap is $1.5 million. So we have penalties, we have fines, and we have the use of our tax dollars. Are we getting our value? And so that is a difficult um, question to wrestle with because every time we look at our W-2 statement, we see how much income tax is withheld. Um, Our uh, 15-year-old daughter got a job this summer, and she noticed on her paycheck that Social Security and Medicare tax is removed from her paycheck. And to her, that dollar amount, which is not very high, seems to be significant because she already calculated immediately upon seeing her first paycheck this summer how much she has to work in order to pay for her Social Security and Medicare benefits, which may or may not be there in 50 years, uh, assuming they don't raise the Social Security and Medicare age uh, to... (laughs) keep the program solvent. Um, So she sees that she's getting taxed. And the question is, her question is, what am I getting for my tax dollars? My 15-year-old can figure it out. The character of Martin Vanderhoff, played by Lionel Barrymore, certainly figured it out. The question is, when are all of us going to figure it out and, and demand that when we spend money on anything, you know, when we go to the store, we want value, value for our dollars. We don't mind spending our dollars. We have a very vibrant economy in the United States of America. We spend a lot of money. We have a high GDP, uh, around $20 trillion. It means we spend a lot of money. But when we spend it, we want to get value. And... The question is, did we get all of the value we expected out of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009? So, let's talk about uh, some of this value and the provisions. And did this, uh, is the strengthening of these HIPAA violations, penalties, um, and regulations, was it effective? We've, I recall that, uh, I don't know, this is over 10 years ago, I believe the Blue Cross Blue Shield system in California got hacked. And virtually everybody who had Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance in California, uh, I believe that was the insurer. I could be misspeaking, but it was definitely in California and it was definitely an insurer. Um, um, the, and every, and protected health information of millions of people was uh, breached. Now, Worry, uh, we need to uh, take a quick break. And, you know, you've brought up such interesting points. And uh, you're right. We don't. Where's our value? And um, we'll be back 
with Dr. Hampola right after this. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. Doctor, you're doing It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight uh, and become a member I'll, of an organization I'll created on, by doctors like right now, for patients you you dedicated to fighting to for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please okay, go to uh, www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio and the Doctor's Lounge, and our guest host today in the Doctor's Lounge is in Houston, Texas, and uh, that's near and dear to me. And uh, now let's get back to Dr. Ori Hempel and the Doctor's Lounge, and it's all yours, Doctor. Thank you, David. So before the break, we talked about... Um uh, the security of the health information and whether HIPAA strengthening that was uh, added by the high-tech law of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, whether that was effective. Well, it is effective from the standpoint that uh, we've seen that we've had to change password and then large passwords. I think uh, one of the hospital systems... Um, where I practice in a couple of their hospitals recently forced me to change a password to like 15 characters. I mean, it's it's insane. It's insane. I mean, uh, does that really increase security that much? And every hospital now, almost every hospital, has a two-step authentication where if you don't have your cell phone, you can't access the hospital because it needs the hospital for you to log on remotely has to send you an electronic message to confirm on the phone, uh, either a code or uh, uh, an app that you say, okay, this is I. Um, and so there's so many layers of security that the question is, are we really protecting the health information or are we just causing obstacles and delaying access to the care? Um, you know, it takes a long time sometimes to log on remotely to the hospital system Uh to access the electronic health record when we need to chart on our patients or get information. So, as, so let's let's move on to additional uh, per, uh, issues that had to do with this high tech law. Part of the purpose was to improve the quality, safety, efficiency, and reduce healthcare disparities. That was the goal of this high-tech law. Now, 
This is almost 15 years. This thing has been law for 14 and a half years. Um, and the question is, for the more well over $28 billion that are of our tax dollars that have been spent on this law, not to mention, not to mention all the private sector money that has been sent, spent. So, for example, um, $28 billion, that was the, the incentive part. But, you know, every government entity that provides health care had to get their own electronic health records. And, you know, are we getting our money's worth for what they spent to obtain those records? And every private entity, such as, you know, our private practice or private group practice and every hospital system that is private had to spend you know six figures for small practices seven or eight figures or possibly more for large hospital systems um, of private money to put in place these electronic health records um, and so all this amount of money that was spent well did it improve the quality, safety, efficiency, and reduce healthcare disparity? I mean, this is the goal of the law, right? That was that was a a goal, a noble goal, a, a good intention. Remember, all laws are passed with angelic good intentions. We are going to go under that premise. Okay, uh, we are not going to use the Ronald Reagan line of government is the problem. We're going to say that government has a purpose, and we want government to do a good job of um, of performing its function and giving us value for our money. Okay, um, and so I'm not opposed to paying taxes, but I want to get my money's worth out of those taxes. I want those taxes to work; those tax dollars to work effectively. I want them to be handled responsibly. So the question is, did the government accomplish its goal with this law? Did we improve quality? We've discussed this in many other shows. Um, I did as well as Hal did, uh, as well as uh, other hosts um, uh, on this show. And did we improve quality? For example, um, I could tell you for a fact that... uh, Hospital systems may maintain all kinds of quality metrics um, and meaningful use. Remember those words from earlier this show? They're supposed to maintain metrics and measurements of quality. Well, um, we have countless stories, countless stories, where these electronic health records put in automated order sets, which are built in, sometimes with and sometimes without physician input. Um and supervision, and so that a patient comes with a specific complaint, and one of uh, one of the I think most egregious things I've seen uh, in, over the last fifteen years was that the patient comes in with blood in the urine, with gross hematuria. They are bleeding, and then they get admitted to the hospital. Sometimes, you know, usually with a catheter being placed and irrigation and all kinds of orders like that, and the automatic order set um, is implemented in order to follow those quality metrics. One of those quality metrics on hospitalized patients is to prevent blood clots, deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary emboli, 
blood clots, things that can kill people and hurt them. So when those order sets are invoked, the patient gets put on blood thinners, on anticoagulation medications. And sometimes because these electronic health records have turned physicians and nurses into robots where the electronic health record is managing the patient and the human being that is interfacing with the patient has relegated their synaptic function, the reasoning function of the brain, to the computer. And therefore, because there's an order in the computer to give an anticoagulant, a blood thinner, to the patient, the nurse comes by and injects the patient's abdomen with Lovenox, for example. The patient is actively bleeding, and they just got a blood thinner to ensure they continue to actively bleed. And I have not one, not two, not three, way more examples of my patients or patients that I was brought in to care for in the hospital setting where they came in bleeding and got blood thinners and continued to bleed to the point where they needed transfusions and sometimes multiple transfusions and other blood products in order to reserve, to, to reverse, to reverse the the anticoagulation that was given to these patients. And so, yes, that's not quality. That's harming patients, okay? And that doesn't happen. That does not happen unless you have an electronic health record that is guiding this. Because I've discussed this at a previous show when I was a medical student, when I was a resident, we hand-wrote our orders. And when you hand-wrote those orders, it forced you as a physician to think through what IV fluids do I need? What medications am I ordering? And, oh, i got a patient with bleeding. I will not handwrite a anticoagulation order. So, yes, quality and safety. So safety is the second thing, quality and safety. We just talked about quality metrics in order to avoid blood clots. And then safety violation where the patient was harmed, not taken care of and protected and made safe was harmed by the electronic health records and the protocols that get started with one click, with one click, maybe two clicks, clicking the order set and then clicking order it. And um, in a couple of clicks of a mouse in a computer system and the patient's quality of care just went down the toilet and the patient's safety was seriously compromised. So now let's talk about efficiency. This law was to cause efficiency, efficiency in managing healthcare. All right, so I could tell you for a fact that electronic health records lengthen the time that a physician takes to chart on patients compared to the old paper charting. Um, is more information displayed and captured? Yes. Is all that information that is captured in every visit not already present in other parts of the medical record? No, that information is already in that medical record, but it's reiterated by these electronic medical records because that is how they're designed. 
And on the one hand, it's good because it can bring information that uh, to the forefront. The other hand, it's bad because it creates electronic medical record notes that when you print them out, sometimes they're four, five, ten, fifteen pages of for one visit, for one note. And, you know, the old expression, garbage in, garbage out. Well, that's a lot of garbage out. Is there information there? Absolutely. But when I send an electronic medical record to a referring physician, to a health insurer to approve a procedure, they have to sift through so much ink, (laughs) digital ink or physical ink, in order to figure out what is this doctor thinking? What is this doctor trying to do for this patient? Because they have to spend a lot of time reading through pages and pages of information to figure out what is the important information that I need in order to care for this patient, approve this procedure, deny or approve this medication, usually deny. Um, that's sarcasm. Uh, and and is this efficient? No, it is not efficient. Um, we all is it efficient when my power went out in my office building um, and we couldn't access our electronic health records? That was that efficient care? No, it was not. Um, and then let's talk about the last thing: reduce healthcare disparities. It's been fifteen years. Have we eliminated healthcare disparities between socioeconomic classes, racial groups, have we ethnic groups? Have we reduced those um, disparities? We've not. We've not. You know, I take care of uh, patients from all walks of life and all demographics uh, uh, parameters. Um, I take care of children. I take care of adults. I take care of the elderly. Um, and you know, there's disparities. There's still disparities. Because you can't legislate disparities away. I mean, we certainly tried under this law and many other laws, but we failed. So now I think we've, uh, um, and then the last thing that this law claims to do is to, uh, um, to improve the clinical coordination of care or quality. Well, that hasn't happened. 15 years and it hasn't happened. So the question is, when we spend our money to get a product or a service, and so we as consumers of being American citizens paying our tax dollars to get a service, and that service is the government taking care of us, improving our lives, improving the lives of our fellow Americans, um, besides getting our money's worth of did we get what we're paying for, There's a time value. I mean, are we getting what we're paying for in a timely fashion? It's been almost 15 years, and after spending all this money on this law, are we getting what we paid for, and are we ever going to get what we paid for? It's been 15 years. So in other words, if we were going to have reduce health care disparities and improve the quality and the safety and the efficiency... We should have seen it by now, but we've seen everything has really been the opposite. So I'm going to change gears to a a different law and talk about did we get our money's worth. Um, 
In March of 2010, President Obama signed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. And that uh, oxymoron of a name of a law, of course, we always know that any federal law, you read the title and you know the reality is the opposite. So that was later renamed the ACA um, instead of PPACA. And then later, and of course, it's affectionately known as Obamacare, and Obama said he liked that, and President Obama said he liked that name. And the original price tag was $940 billion. This law was going to cost our taxpayers $940 billion. And why did we have to pass a trillion-dollar law? The reason was because we had an emergency, urgent situation. There were 27 million Americans that did not have health care. Well... They did have health care. They did not have health insurance. 27 million Americans did not have health insurance. So we were going to spend $940 billion. Well, the government accounting office later on um, figured out that it was really $1.683 trillion that was spent in the first few years. So it was not $940 billion. It was twice that. It was over $1.5 trillion were spent on Obamacare. This is initially, of course, much has been spent since then. Um, And remember, we had this law, and the law was supposed to fix access to care and make those 27 million uninsured patients insured. Well, I was just reading um, uh, the other day, something came from Yahoo Finance. Um, This is within the last month. And he talked about how uh, states are doing as far as providing health care services, etc. And guess how many uninsured are, do we have in America today? 27 million people. So we went from, 27, from spending $1.683 trillion in order to make sure that 27 million people are not uninsured and therefore theoretically having access to care. Of course, we've discussed that. Insurance and access are two different things. And 14 years later, 13 years later, we have the same amount of Americans, the same number of Americans that are still uninsured. So, did we get our money's worth? We spent 1.6, we spent 1.683 of our hard-earned tax dollars. And in order to insure 27 million people, 13 years later, we have 27 million people uninsured. I think our government has failed us. And um, um, and this is not a, a partisan thing because Republicans had the chance to change this law, implement it. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, had a chance to shoot it down uh, versus uh, change the word penalty to tax. Uh, in order to make it uh, legal and legislate from the Supreme Court bench. Um, and uh, so this is, and of course, the law was passed by Democrats without a single Republican vote. But so both parties have failed to stop this kind of uh, irresponsible spending. Now, did the law do anything that was good? Uh, did did uh, Obamacare accomplish anything that was good? Yeah, I mean, there were... I have a lot of patients that have insurance coverage because of Obamacare. Um, 
their deduct many of these people have deductibles that are out of control. Uh, some of them, the deductible alone is in excess of seven thousand dollars. So that means that if they have a surgery, they got to come. They got to come up with the first seven thousand um, dollars. And for most Americans, that's not affordable. Uh, you know, we know that eighty percent of Americans can't come up with, you know, or fifty percent of Americans or more. About it can't come up with $500 for an emergency and you're talking about deductibles that are $7,000. That's that's not access to care. It might be health insurance coverage. Um, uh, did this law, are we just talking about tax dollar expense? I could tell you that uh, All right, thank you, David. I could tell you that uh, the health insurance premiums that I pay for my insurance coverage uh, and uh, President Obama said, you can keep your health care plan. Well, I was one of the few people he was actually telling the truth to. Um, and I have the same pre-Obamacare plan. The only problem is my annual premiums have tripled in the last 13 years. Tripled. I spent over $24,000 per year before I or my kids seek any health care. Just in premiums. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, and um, um, and which is why I drive Toyotas and not not a Tesla, um, and uh, uh, in order to partially be, in order to be able to afford healthcare. Um, but uh, let's uh, uh, so the uh, and so the other thing, the other cost of these laws. Is it's not just the money, our tax dollars not being used responsibly. It's that these laws force us to spend other hard-earned money on complying with these laws, on consequences of these laws, like increased health care premiums, increased deductibles of consumers, increased co-insurances, increased co-pays. When I went into business, co-pays were 5 or 10 bucks for my patients to see me. Now I'm a specialist. Co-pays can range from 20 bucks. 50 bucks, 70 bucks, 90 bucks for an office visit. Okay? So that's taxation indirectly. So, in other words, you're increasing the cost of the consumer with this law after you've already irresponsibly, after the government has already irresponsibly spent our tax dollars. Now, one more message in this movie. Back to our movie. The movie is You Can't Take It With You from 1938. And this is a great movie. I recommend you watch it. There's a uh, the message is that the uh, the only thing you can take with you is the love of your friends. So we work hard, we try to accumulate wealth, and uh, you can't take it with you. Um, the wealth is not ours. Uh, a religious viewpoint of this is that uh, all the wealth belongs to God, and we are only custodians of it while we are on this earth and uh, um, and it's our responsibility to manage this wealth and to use it properly and to do good with it but uh, this movie just like It's a Wonderful Life another Jimmy Stewart movie um, this movie has such a similar type message where this the Martin Vanderhoff character has positively touched so many people that when he is in need of money um, uh, he's helped out as well um, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful message, but it's very important. And I've taken this movie and its message to heart. You know, um, I, I make more attempts now to 
decrease my work day and finish it earlier so I can come home for dinner uh, in time for dinner to spend more time with my wife that I love very much and my children that I love very much. Uh, we have lively dinner discussions on all kinds of topics. Um, and uh, and uh, that's precious. And uh, uh, you can't take the money with you, but uh, these memories you can't take with you either, but you can instill them into other people that are going to stay beho- be, uh, behind after you're gone. Um, and so as we, you know, many people that listen to this, sh- this show are physicians and, uh, and other people who work very hard and uh, try to get ahead and try to save and try to provide. And, um, and the message in this movie, and it was a message to me, um, is uh, that we need to spend more time doing things that are important outside of just earning money, uh, spend more time with our families, uh, to spend more time with our lo- loved ones, to and not just time, just quality time, time that we're enjoying each other. Um, I uh, I could tell you that in the last uh, last couple months, I have seen more movies, sat down and watched more movies with my wife and my kids than I have in the prior five to ten years. Um, um, it's, I think, a very, very important message uh, of this movie that we need to kind of recalibrate every once in a while what our priorities are. And, yes, it's important that I go to work and I take care of my patients, I diagnose their cancers, I cure their cancers, I make them comfortable, I relieve suffering, I improve their quality of life, and I take care of them. And my, and my patients are very important to me, and my practice is very important to me. But it's also important that we try to get some sort of balance. And I'm working on my own balance so that to spend more time with loved ones um, and uh, try to find a balance in our priorities. So go watch that movie. So find a way to stream it. You can't take it with you from 1938 with Lionel Barrymore and James Stewart. Um, and remember to please go to Docs for Patient Care Foundation d4pcfoundation.org and contribute there your tax deductible contribution so we can continue to bring you these shows um, nobody in that organization no physician in that organization is paid we, we do it voluntarily and uh, because it's our mission to improve health care for everybody and improve access and quality of care for everybody so this is Ori Hample. Uh, I'm signing off from Houston, Texas, uh, where I hope it cools off, but I really know that it will not until October. And so we will continue to sweat here in Houston as uh, as we go on. Have a good day. You're everybody. listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station.